My name is Kathleen and I am an alcoholic. Um, my gosh, um, my sobriety date is August 29, 1992, uh, which means I celebrated my 30 year anniversary just a few days ago, a little more than a week. Um, I was 17 when I got sober. I became a grown up. I, I think I'm already starting to cry. I don't know what it is. I, I've always been an emotional speaker. I'm an emotional person. Um, and there's just something about this meeting and there's something so special about looking at my friend Bonnie right there in the center of my screen. Um, I think you all know I was introduced to this meeting through Bonnie. So, so anyway, I'll, I'll, I love that, that I've already heard, um, the F-bomb twice in this call. Um, the, the big joke in North Carolina, I'm no longer there, but the big joke in North Carolina was that there was not going to be a meeting without Kathleen and not hearing the word fuck at least a couple of times. Uh, and so, um, and, and I have to comment, you know, the, the idea of, that this meeting is okay with expressing doubt. And I'll, I guess I'll talk more about this when we get to, you know, talking about the spiritual experience and relationship or, or not with a higher power. You know, for me, it isn't just doubt with regard to a higher power, but doubt in the program itself. You, I, I don't know. I, I, I assume it's true for everyone, but I can't know for sure. I have a relationship with AA and I have a relationship with program after 30 years, right? For me, there have been ups and downs. It, it's, you know, it's not, for me, it has not been a linear experience. Um, and so there have been plenty of times I've had doubt in the program as well. So anyway, what it was like, um, what happened and what it's like now, um, or maybe what it's been like since. Um, so like I said, I was very young when I got sober, um, which means I have a very, very short drinking history to talk about. That's usually the shortest part of, of my story now. Um, my grew up in a very, very normal family, I would say. My mother is an ex-nun. <laughs> Uh, and you know, my father is a good old fashioned mentally ill alcoholic. Uh, and I think that's pretty normal. Like, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, had a, a relatively happy childhood, although a father with a drinking problem and, a, and, a, and mental illness, you know, could make things rocky. He told us he was, he was very explosive. Um, he would, my memories of him are very, very few and far between. Um, but primarily he would sit at the head of the kitchen table and he would drink, uh, and then he would get drunk. And then he would say, I wish you were never born. He would get upset about the noise and go from zero to a hundred and, and start screaming and throwing things and breaking things. Um, he wasn't physically abusive. Thankfully, my mother counterbalanced all of that. My husband calls my mother, St. Catherine of Escondido. She lives in Escondido, California. Um, and she really is a saint. She's, she is um, now an atheist, um, you know, which is funny, but she, um, she is still probably lives that message of, you know, caring for others better than most I know. Um, but during that period when I was about 12 is when I started smoking pot and drinking. My father was in a mental institution. My older sister had been hospitalized for depression. There was a lot going on. It was a very unhappy time. I was in middle school, which is like, at least for us in the US, like most people's worst period of life. 
and it just kind of happened, right? I was, I was in, um, uh, I was in middle school and it just kind of happened. I, I, my neighbor had, you know, was a pothead and a drinker and it just kind of happened, you know? So I, I don't know if there's a bigger reason than that for starting to drink, but what happened when I started drinking and drinking was always my, my favorite. I actually started with pot, gave up pot really early because it just put me to sleep. Um, but, um, but, but drinking was a different story. I mean, I, I believe it's in my blood. I believe it's in my blood. My father's alcoholic, my grandfather's alcoholic, my other grandfather's alcoholic. I have a cousin who died of alcoholism before he died of alcoholism. He lost half a foot because he passed out in a snowbank and it froze and he had to have it removed, you know, that typical, typical stuff. Um, so as a very unhappy kid, I, I, you know, somehow discovered pot, somehow discovered alcohol, um, and just sort of went in that direction for a little while. I will say it this way. I was fortunate enough to also fall into, um, methamphetamines, crystal meth. And I say that I was fortunate to fall into that because that took me very, very, very quickly straight down. Um, by the time I was done, and this was only about five years later, by the time I was done, um, and by the way, I loved crystal meth because when I did meth, I could drink three times as much. Um, you know, like I was a really sloppy drunk. I would get drunk. I would throw up. I would pass out. I would go to the bathroom in the middle of the street. My clothes fell off when I got drunk. I don't know if anybody knows that song, Tequila Makes My Clothes Fall Off. That was me. That was me. Um, and meth helped me control that a little bit. Better, I'll say. Like, you know, I could stay awake and I could stay drunk and, um, but it also meant I had, by the end of it, I had open sores on my body that wouldn't heal. I was constantly picking at my skin. My teeth were starting to rot. Um, I, I had uncontrollable sweating, which for some reason was the most embarrassing part of it all. Um, I remember going on my first big girl date. I think I was probably 16 at the time. And, and a guy um, asked me to go out and ridiculous because he was buying alcohol, which means he was at least 21. And I was 16. This is probably not appropriate, but um, I remember so well going out with him and instinctively divided. He went and got wine coolers. I instinctively divided. Okay, these are yours and these are mine. Like it was about the alcohol and I was staking my claim. I drank mine and his weren't finished. So I helped him finish his. And this was really the first time I was really embarrassed. He was driving me home. And I, of course, sloppy, disgusting, drunk, had to throw up, put my head out the window. He gets me to my front door and he says, um, I, I'd kiss you, but you know. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I do. I guess I can understand why you would not want to give me a good night kiss after I just vomited out your car window. You know, um, I started doing things that were a little bit dangerous. I remember being really drunk one night and getting lost. I was underage. So we would drink in fields. We would drink on mountains. We would drink. And I got lost in my car on the side of a mountain, like literally no roads, no path, no nothing. I am just driving my car on the side of a mountain. Um, so things like that, you know, for, for a kid. Um, but what really, what, what really got me in the end wasn't that stuff. I didn't lose a house. I didn't lose a car. I didn't lose a family. Um, I was too young to have those things, to lose them. Um, but I started to feel embarrassed. I started to feel scared. 
And I started to have that pit inside that I will never ever forget that was just so bleak and so empty and so dark. You know, I just became this, this shell of a human at 17, wanting to die, wanting to die, hoping and praying every night when I put my head on the pillow that my heart would literally explode and that I just wouldn't wake up the next day. And I think about that for any 17 year old, just how sad that is for anybody, how sad that is. And that was the thing that finally got me. I knew, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that my problem was the alcohol and the drugs. You know, I, would, I felt so totally alone. For many, many years, I would describe that as no one loving me. And the reality is, it's not that no one loved me, it's that I had absolutely lost the ability to feel loved. I still had a mother who cared for me. I still have two sisters, um, a father who did the best he could. Um, I was absolutely loved, right? In hindsight, 30 years later, I was loved. I could not feel it. I knew the problem was alcohol. I knew the problem was alcohol. There's no question in my mind. And so I decided to quit, which I, you know, was seemed like a good idea. I decided to quit. And lo and behold, I could not quit for even 24 hours. And that to me was a shock. I had no idea. I had no idea I was addicted to alcohol. I had no idea I was addicted to drugs. I thought it was just having fun. And that when it stopped being fun, I could walk away. And I think that's that's the next thing. That was a real gift, right? That that total surprise. I never tried to moderate. And I think I never tried to moderate because I never ever drank in moderation. Like it wasn't a slow ramp up for me. It was day one drunk and drunk every single time after that. That was the, that was the point. I didn't understand why you would drink if your plan wasn't to get drunk. I never liked the taste of it. I never, you know, enjoyed that fuzzy feeling in the middle. It was just, I wanted to get completely blotto. So um, I couldn't stop even for a day. And I, I had no idea what I was going to do. My best idea was, was just don't do it. Hanging out with the same people, going to the same places uh, and couldn't stop even for a day. Very, very shortly thereafter, just a few weeks after. So this is kind of the, you know, what happened part of things. I was at work. I worked in a restaurant. I was the hostess at a restaurant. I remember standing there in my little green shirt and my little green bow tie and just gigantic sweat rings because the I was such a mess physically. And um, this guy, it was a Friday night. And this guy I'd never, ever met before. I'd never seen him before. Comes in with this big group of people. And I knew that there were two groups of people that came in on a Friday night. There was the church group and there was the AA group. And um, I knew that the AA group went to the smoking section and the church group went to the non-smoking section. And so I, I said, you know, oh, you know, which, which section are you guys here for? And he said, you know, or I said, which group are you? And he said, AA, I don't remember. And so I told the guy, go set up the smoking section and, you know, the bus boy. And this old fucker is how I would describe him with love. Comes and he takes my hand in his and I mean, he was old. He was ancient. He had to have been in his late fifties. Um, and remember, I was seventeen, so that was fucking ancient. 
and he takes my hand in his, I'm standing at my podium at my job, standing at my podium. He takes my hand in his, and he says, you know about AA, don't you? Like, yeah. You know, I'm a child of the talk show generation, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and Bill Donahue, and Oprah, and like, yep, okay, Marcia gets it. And um, yep, I know about that. And he says, you, about, you know about NA too, don't you? Yep. And he just looked me in the eyes, and he said, why don't you come to a meeting sometime? And I was panicked. I was panicked. I did not know this guy. I don't, I don't know how this guy knew me, except again, maybe in hindsight, looking at my overall appearance and possibly the smell. Um, and I'm telling you, and I am not religious and I, I don't believe in God. I don't, but I'm really, really comfortable with the idea that I don't understand everything and I don't have an answer for everything. And that's okay. With every fiber of my being, I tried to tell this guy, I'm okay. I used to do that. I don't anymore. I'm fine. That's what I wanted to believe. That's what I wanted to be true. I did make the decision. I need to stop this. Or I, maybe I shouldn't say that. I acknowledged the problem and thought I need to stop this. Um, but the reality was I hadn't stopped. I wanted that to be true, but it wasn't true. And the, I literally was, was like stuttering. Um, and I'm not one to ever be at a loss for words. And there are, Bonnie knows, Bonnie's laughing because she knows. And there I was stuttering. And the only thing that would come out of my mouth was okay. That was how I got to my first meeting. Now that was a Friday night. And he said, come to a meeting sometime. So I was like, okay, well, there's that Friday night meeting. So there was that whole week, that whole week where I'm thinking about that meeting. Can't stay sober. Didn't stay sober for that week. That's impossible. But Friday night came and I told that guy I was gonna be there. And if he didn't know who I was, he didn't have my phone number, he couldn't. I guess he could have found me at work, right? But there was, there was absolutely no reason why I had to go to that meeting, except that I was 17. I was used to doing what grownups told me to do. And that's the best explanation I can give. I remember getting in my car, telling myself, I'm not going to that meeting, pulling in the parking lot, saying, I'm not going to stop, opening the door of my car, saying to myself, I'm not walking in, opening the door of the meeting. And they fucking, they handed me chapter five to read. And I was like, this is too much. I cannot. I sat in that chair. I started reading chapter five. Um, you will not be surprised to hear. I started bawling. I think I got a few sentences in, had to hand it off to somebody else. I'll never forget. And I, and that was the beginning. And I, I started that night. I started crying that night. And I think I stopped crying about a year later. It took me about that year to get through the 12 steps for the first time. Um, and again, like I, I think about all, I, so frequently I think about what my life could have been like. And you know, for somebody who got sober at 17, thinking about what my life could have been like is a very, very different question to contemplate. I have had and still have the most amazing, incredible life, having had the opportunity to become an adult working the principles of this program. 
And having learned a way of living that aligns with the principles of this program and the steps of this program before I had the chance to learn another way. There's so much I never had to unlearn. For me, it, I became like, when we talk about the, the principles of the program are, are a, a, you know, a plan for living, that was so, so true in my case. So I came in, step one was easy. I knew it was a shit show, that was easy. Um, step two and step three were a little trickier, were a little bit trickier. And I had a great sponsor who basically did not care what I said, what I thought, or what I felt about anything. She would say, I don't know. I just know this is what worked for me. Go do it. And she had me do things like get on my knees every morning and every night and say my prayers and say them out loud. And I hated it. I hated it. I thought it was silly. I thought it was embarrassing. I thought it was humiliating, but I did it. And I think for me, the power in that was not some divine being that's out there. I think the power in that was just saying, fuck it. I don't have a better idea. I have no idea even where to begin. If this is what she wants me to do, I'm going to play along. And I played along. So much of it for so long, especially in that realm, was just about playing along. For me, it was palatable. It's not palatable for everyone. For me, it was palatable. Um, and so I did what I was told to do. And what I really got out of two and three is my way is not working. My way is not working and I'm gonna listen to somebody else. And really, in my case, that was my sponsor. This is what worked for my sponsor. This is what my sponsor did. This is what I'm gonna do. Whether or not it makes sense, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna to try to make sense of anything right now. I'm just gonna go along. A lot of that wasn't conscious thought. A lot of this is, you know, upon reflection this many years later, but at the time that's what it was, you know? And again, the gift of, of youth. I was used to doing what grownups told me to do. The other thing she had me do, and this one stands out so much to me. She had me make my bed every morning and I couldn't understand that. And I said to her, I'm a kid. I shouldn't have to make my bed. And she said, you have an adult disease that will kill you. It's time for you to start acting like an adult. I was like, oh, okay. So again, it was like almost symbolic. It was the ritual of, I'm going to take something seriously. I'm going to take this seriously. Um, I don't know if I realized at the time that my life depended on it. I just knew that I was so miserable that living a life in gray tone, because that for me was what what it meant to stop drinking. That's for me what it meant to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. It meant I was gonna be living my life in gray tones. There was not, there's no way I could ever have fun in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no way I could ever have fun as a sober person. I knew that for sure. That was my biggest fear. Um, but living where I was with that dark pit of despair, that was even worse than never having fun ever again. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a life lived in gray tones. Um, step four and five were amazing. My sponsor tricked me into step five. She said, okay, do step four, write this stuff out. And I'd heard everybody talk about step five is so scary. It's where, you know, you go and you confess everything, you share everything, you expose all your secrets and all your deepest, darkest inner workings and fears. And, um, uh, 
uh, it goes out to the world. You know, for me, there was absolutely this connection to confession. It wasn't completely um, foreign to me. Um, but she tricked me into it. She said, don't, don't worry about step five, just do your step four and then we'll meet and we'll talk about it. And then we'll talk about what's next. And I was like, okay, I didn't know any better. I didn't know how this whole thing worked. And, um, step four and five were amazing. Not because of the, you know, exposing the secrets. Maybe that was part of it, but it was my realization of the fact that I was the asshole. Oh my God, I'm the asshole. It's not everybody else. It's me. All of these things I'm so upset about, you know, and for me, the big example was the boyfriend. I had this boyfriend and I couldn't understand why he wasn't nicer to me and why he didn't love me more and why he, frank I paid his bill, parents' house, they loved that. Um, he, I let him use my dad's tool, you know, all this stuff. Like I was such a good girlfriend and, um, I'm getting a notice that my connection is unstable. Can you still hear me or should I turn off my video? A thumbs up. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then I realized, you know what? He was never anything but honest with me. When I decided to get sober, I went to him and I said, I'm going to quit drinking. I want you to do this with me. And he said, no, I don't want to. I want to keep partying. And I was so resentful of that instead of being appreciative and grateful for the fact that the dude was honest with me, drinking and drugging and partying were more important to him than I was. Okay. I can't fight somebody into caring about me the way I want them to care about me. I can't argue somebody into caring about me the way I want them to care about me. I have to accept the reality and be grateful that he didn't string me along or drag me through anything. And so it was this four and five for me, again, a way of living. How do I become introspective? How do I really understand what's motivating me? How do I understand what's mine and what's theirs and how I'm contributing? And then I get to make a decision about how I want to participate in that relationship. Do I want to keep fighting with the person and trying to convince him to love me the way I want him to be loved, him to love me? Or do I say that's not going to happen and it might hurt and it might suck and he might be shitty in a whole bunch of ways, but the reality is I'm the one who's making myself miserable, you know, and frankly, that's something that served me very well. It's a skill. It's a skill. When I get feedback at work and trust me, I get feedback at work. You know, my boss has feedback for me, coaching, they call it. Um, I get to listen to that with an open mind. And I get to decide what part of that I'm going to take and do something with and what part of that isn't right for me, doesn't fit me, is something I'm going to make the conscious decision not to change for whatever reason. I don't have to get upset every time I get feedback. I don't have to try and fit myself into somebody else's box. I get to reflect and decide, you know, is this real? Is this not real? Um, six and seven for me are daily right? Those character defects, they come up. Sometimes they're louder than other times, but I'm aware of who I am. I'm aware of, of what's blocking me. I'm, I'm aware of when I'm giving in and indulging in, in um, you know, the easier, softer way, I'll call it. Um, it was hard for me to understand six and seven in the beginning um, until I used gossip as an example, like where it talks about how, Hey, you might not want to let go of all these character defects. They may be actually serving a purpose. Um, but it, it, you know, in the extreme, they become damaging. And for me, it was gossip. One of the things I realized about gossip 
Um, and I'm going to be honest, I still gossip today, but I, what I learned was that I was using gossip to make friends, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Talking shit about somebody is often quite fun and often grows a bond with the other person on the other hand side of that conversation. But is that really the kind of relationship I want to have with other people in my life? One that's built on something negative and something that's harmful to another person or potentially painful to another person. I don't think that's how I want to live. So how do I want to live? Who do I want to be? Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean I, of course, of course, you know, I still, my God, my husband, you know, like anybody who's married, anybody who has a partner, um, that's when the character defects for me really come out. Eight and nine were exceptional. Um, my example there, right? It's terrifying to go to these people and confess what I had done. As long as it's something that really they already knew, right? It's the whole point is to not harm others. Um, but to, to sort of unburden myself with so much of this. And repair relationships if possible. So my younger sister, I was very brutal to my younger sister. I used to be quite violent. I was a fighter um, and I would take out my pain physically. And very often I would target my younger sister because she was an easy target. And I would do that whether I was drunk or sober. And so for many years, she wasn't speaking to me and I couldn't blame her. I couldn't blame her. And even in sobriety, she held on to that anger for a number of years. Um, and I would say it was maybe two or three years sober. And for some reason, she and I were in the car together and we were going to pick up my mother from the airport. And I don't know what happened, except that I had done my eight step work and my ninth step work. And I said, I just, it, it, it came out, Margaret, I wish I had been a better sister to you especially when things were so bad when we were younger, so bad with my dad and my older sister. And, and I made things harder for her, not easier. And, um, and she said, nope, stop. I know what you're doing. I know what this is. I don't need any part of that. I don't want to hear it. That's, it's old news. It's done. I don't want anything to do with this. And I said, okay. Um, but from that moment on, she was speaking to me again. She became my friend again. Um, she ended up coming to the same college with me. And we were together in college for two years. Um, we lived overseas together. Um, we lived in China for two years together. Um, I went there because she was living there and I thought it would be fun. And she thought it would be fun. You know, I, um, so much of this has been about the relationships that I had and had to repair and wanted to grow and the new relationships that I've developed. Um, I have two kids, they're 10 and 12. I've been married for, I don't know, 15 years. I'd have to count. I'm not good at that stuff. Um, my kids have never seen me drunk. My kids have never seen me drunk and they never have to. Um, I have never cheated on my husband. 
on purpose or accidentally. Uh, and I'm telling you, when I was drinking, <laughs> that was not the case. Uh, when I was drinking, I had a lot of relationships that lasted 24 hours or less. Uh, and, and frankly, I did too when I was sober, because come on, I was a young person living overseas, having a wonderful time. You know, I get to do what I want to do with my body, but I got to do what I wanted to do. It was never an accident. You know, I, like I was in my right mind. I made, I made good, honest, um, sober decisions. Um, so 10, 11, and 12, that's nine. 10, 11, and 12, sometimes I hear it referred to as the maintenance steps. Um, 10 is the hardest thing in my life when it comes to my husband um, because, you know, I have a program that I live by. Um, and so when we get into it, and of course we do because we're human, um, I have to take a step back. I don't have to, I choose to. I've chosen this as a way of life. I've, I've chosen this as a, as a structure for, for living and, you know, the sort of being and acting as the person that I, I want to be. Uh, and so I take a step back and I say, okay, what is mine that I need to own? And I go to him and I say, this is mine and I'm, I'm going to own it. And I apologize. And what can I do to make up for it if I need to? And his answer as somebody who's not in program is, yeah, you were an asshole. <laughs> and I do want you to do that to make up for it. And it's like, okay, hey, you know what? He doesn't have a program. This is how I choose to live my life. It doesn't matter how he acts. I mean, it does, right? But it doesn't. His behavior doesn't determine my behavior. If I want to live this way of life, if I want to be this type of person, I get to make those decisions for myself independent of what is happening outside and around. And the reason I choose to do it is because I'm happier. I am a happier person. I will never, ever forget the pain of that pit that drove me into my first meeting, that made me open to going to my first meeting. I don't ever wanna get anywhere close to that ever again. Um, I, have, I have gotten closer to it. I've been in program for 30 years, not always an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when I was nine months sober, it was time for me to go away to college. And I went away to college and I, it took me six months to get to a first meeting because I didn't know how to move sober, especially at that age. Why well, I say that, who the hell knows? Who knows how to move sober the first time and find a whole new group of people. And I didn't have a car and how was I going to get to meetings? And the whole thing was overwhelming and terrifying and scary. And my sponsor, I called my sponsor, I was losing my shit totally. And I called my sponsor back home and she said, if you don't go to a meeting, you can't come home. And I was like, well, okay. I mean, she said it, I have to do it. Now, I don't know how she would have stopped me from getting onto a plane, but I didn't think that far ahead, right? I, I had the, you know, the, the gift of sort of st stupidity. I don't know what the right word is, but I was like, okay. I was just a dope. I did what I was told. And I went to my first meeting and it was a terrible meeting. It was literally in the cafeteria of a hospital and they would just bring everybody from the behavior center, whether they were alcoholic or had some other issues, everybody from the behavior center came to this meeting. There was one guy in that meeting and he came up to me after he said, you know, I know some really good meetings. I have to drive right past here to get there. I can pick you up and bring you home if you want to go to those meetings. And that 
group that he took me to became my home group for the next three and a half years. I got a sponsor in that group. And she said, what step are you on? And I said, step nine. And she laughed out loud and said, okay, let's go back to step one. And she was right. And there's no, I mean, there's no problem. Like what I'm, you know, who cares if I work the steps once? Who cares if I work them 12 times? It doesn't matter. You want me to start over? I'm going to start over. I started over. Um, and I love, love her. She's still sober. She's like 56 years sober. Um, and it's funny because she was like, she was very traditional AA and she was like, God, 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 and church, church, church. And she, I, I never knew this until many, many years later. She said, I was the one who helped her evolve spiritually. Cause I was like, yeah, I don't believe in the whole God thing. Like I got to the point where I'd say, I don't believe in the whole God thing. Here's how I make sense of it. She was like, oh, that's interesting. You know what? I don't believe in the whole God thing either. Now she's Taoist, which I don't know what that is, but good for her. Um, and, uh, and then I graduated college and I stumbled across this opportunity to move to Costa Rica. And I moved to Costa Rica for two years and I was more or less active in the program for those two years. But again, like moving is hard. I got a sponsor, but you know, we didn't really, we, we like chatted, we became friends. I started to become disillusioned with meetings in Costa Rica because there were so many, like the culture is just, you know, men who've retired to Costa Rica and, you know, there was one guy in particular and he would come to the meeting and brag. He was probably in his late seventies. He would brag about his 15 year old girlfriend. And it's just disgusting to me. Right. And there were a small group of expats and I started to become disillusioned. And that's not AA, by the way, that was him. And that was those meetings, but that's not AA. That was those people who were in those meetings. Um, but then I moved to Mexico city. And when I moved to Mexico city, I mean, I still told people I didn't drink, but I didn't find meetings. And I didn't find a sponsor every once in a blue moon. I think I went to a meeting. I can't remember why I'm more of like a social thing. Um, and then I moved to China and I don't know how many years sober. I don't know. Maybe I was 12 years sober at this point. And I moved to China and I made a deliberate decision. I'm not going to tell people I don't drink. I'm not going to drink, but I'm not going to make a big deal about it because if I change my mind, I don't want anybody to ask me any questions about it. So there I am in China, no program, no sponsor, um, not even telling anyone that I don't drink. And things start to get bad. I start, you know, I'm angry. I start having an affair with the guy. I wasn't married, but he was, he was a pilot. I mean, just the most disgustingly stereotypical, pathetic relationship you can picture. So here I am sober sleeping with a married man for whom I have zero respect, zero respect. Um, and I get a call from one of my best friends. This is somebody that he and I used to share a sobriety date. Um, and I used to always remind him I'm August 29. He was August 30th of the same year. Uh, and he tells me he's been sober a long time. He's pretty sure alcohol is not his problem. His problem was drugs. Now this guy and I have exactly the same story. Like it's insane, like family situation and our, our using history and our sobriety story. I mean, we're like the same person. And at that point in, in my spiritual health, um, he says, he's thinking about this. 
I did not say, get, wait, I did not say talk to a sponsor. I did not say, are you doing service work at meetings? I did not say, are you going to meetings? I did not say, are you sure this is a good idea? What I said was, let me know how it goes. And I said, let me know how it goes because if it worked for him, it could work for me. I did not try to dissuade him for a second. I wanted to know if I could get away with it too. And I let him have that experiment on my behalf. And I say that there's a lot of ego in that. I didn't let him do anything. I didn't give him the idea. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered if I'd said anything. He may have done it anyway, but, but the reality is I didn't even try because I thought if it works for him, it'll work for me. It did not work for him within a very, very short period of time. You can imagine, right? He almost lost his medical license. He is still now, this is probably 15 years later. You know, he's had many, many relapses since then. Um, it's, been a, it's been a harder life for him as a result of, of his decision. Um, I got to see that. I got to see that and I started to get scared again. And, you know, I don't know why I didn't drink, except that I learned very, very early on and I, and I came to believe very, very early on that there is just something different about my body, that my body processes alcohol differently. And there is no amount of wanting it to be different, wishing it to be different, willing it to be different, praying, meditating that away. It is what it is. And I knew, I just knew, I believed that if I picked up a drink, I was fucked. I also believed that if I ever drink again, that's it for me. I, I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. I don't want to test it out. I don't think I've got another go in this program. I really don't. I feel like I've been here too long. I don't know. I don't know if my, I still have too much ego. I don't know. The prospect is, is, is not good. I'll tell you that. So it's not worth it. Um, and so there I was in China, in China, for God's sake. Um, this guy that I'd known in Mexico calls me up and he says, Hey, Kathleen, I'm in China. Let's go to a meeting together. Cause of course he would have assumed, you know, that I'm still in program and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So I quick, cause I got a reputation. I got an ego quick, find a meeting. There's a Sunday morning meeting. I find a Sunday morning meeting. I make plans to meet in there. Now my Sunday mornings were I religiously went to Sunday brunch with the, the folks I worked with. Um, and we would always go to one of the big fancy five-star hotels and we would always do champagne brunch because it was like 20 bucks for like all the crab legs you could eat and lobster and steak. Like it was, it was ludicrous. And I had to skip Sunday brunch to go to this meeting but obviously my reputation, my ego, cause he's going to go home and talk about me. And I, you know, I need to have good things for him to say. I show up at the meeting and that fucker didn't show up. 
And I was so pissed. I was so pissed. I was so pissed. But I got to tell you, and again, there are just things I can't explain. I'm a statistician, by the way. So I believe in coincidence big time. Um, lack of coincidence would be more remarkable um, than coincidence itself. So um, the woman sitting next to me, I can't even tell you her name. Can't remember her name. She was visiting from Ypsilanti, Michigan. I had just accepted um, a position to study at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Ypsilanti, Michigan and Ann Arbor are on the border to each other. And I, I, and I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. She gives me her number, I take her number, I store it away in some super secret place. Uh, and, you know, it took me six months to call her. It took me six months to call her. I went back to the US, I had my summer in California, finally made it up to Michigan. Maybe it was more like nine months to call her. And this is the last story I'll tell because I know where it's been. A, it's, I knew I had a lot to say. It's been a long time since I told that story. I'm in my apartment in Michigan and I don't have a television. Um, I didn't have a TV actually till I got married, but I didn't have a television. I'd read everything there was to read in my apartment. I had nothing else to read. And I remember I have a big book in the very, very back of the very bottom drawer of the dresser in the back of my closet. Well, I'm that desperate. I go and I get that big book and I crack that, crack that thing open, like for the first time. I mean, it was brand spanking you. I cracked that sucker open. And I read about the guy who put whiskey in his milk. And I read about the guy who quit drinking until he retired and was dead within like three or four years. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was my future that I had to make a decision. Either I was gonna drink again, or I was gonna come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that moment, I remembered that I had things to lose. You know, I was, I was still getting over that. And what I mean by getting over, I was still trying to get that disgusting pilot out of my life. You know, I would say, go away. And then I would say, come here. And then I would say, go away. But at the same time, I, I met the man who eventually became my husband. And I started looking at these two relationships side by side. And it was like a metaphor for my life. What kind of a life do I want to live? You know, and, and it was about the drinking, but it was also about so much more than the drinking. What kind of life do I want to live? What kind of person do I want to be? And I came back to programming. And there's a whole longer story there. Um, I have made friends in this program that are lifelong friends um, because they've saved my life. In some cases, because I've saved theirs, which doesn't make me important. That's part of being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are in the right place at the right time, sometimes. And we say the thing that matters to somebody sometimes. Just like there have been so many times somebody has said, the right thing to me in the moment I needed to hear it, in the moment I was able to hear it. I think about the life I could have had, you know? And I think about the life that I do have. Two kids who've never seen me drunk. 
husband I've never cheated on. I'm so close to my sisters and my mother. I'm at my mother's house today. We were um, evacuated. There was a fire very close to us and I had a place to go. You know, um, when the pandemic came along, I was in a job I didn't really care for. And I said, fuck this. And I quit the job and I got in the car and I drove to California with the two kids and the two dogs and husband and no job, no place to live, no plan. I figured it would work out. It always does. It has for the last 30 years. Um, this is a life I wouldn't trade for anything. And there's not a whole lot that's asked of me to keep it. You know, I just have to show up and do this kind of a thing every once in a while and answer the phone when a friend calls and continue to be honest and continue to look at my side of the street and ask myself, what is the life I want to have? Who is the person I want to be? Okay, I'll do the little bit of work that I'm asked to do. I'll experience the, the occasional discomfort as a trade for having a life that is so full of love that I can feel, that I can feel, that is real, that I can give back. So I'm grateful every day for this program. I'm not yet grateful to be an alcoholic. That may come. But if I have to be an alcoholic, if that's my burden to bear, I'll choose that over a whole lot of other things. And holy shit, if I've got to have that, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for this program uh, and for all of you and, and for letting me be here and letting me share today. It's been a long time and it's, it's good to remember. It's good to feel it again. I'll pass.